pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to learn this morning. Thank you for this passage that will deal with us in such profound ways. There are character issues that you're going to address. But what we need to realize is how thoroughly you want to transform our character into the image of Christ. And so for some of us, these are besetting sins, honesty and anger, taking, words that puff ourselves up, words that harm others. You want our words, O Lord, to build others up. So help us to let you speak into our lives, but even more importantly than that, transform us and show us the depths to which you want to work your act of redemption in our lives. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was a few years ago, um, I made a, a, an invention. It wasn't necessarily an invention. It was more like an improvement on an existing product. I contacted the maker of the product, and I told them I had an improvement on it, and they asked to see it, and we signed all the requisite paperwork and whatnot, and I, I showed them the improvement on their product, and much to my surprise, they really liked it. They said it was a, a big improvement over what they had previously made. And Several days went by. I don't remember exactly how long, but one day my phone rang, and it was their corporate attorney. He was an interesting fella. He was from New York, and I won't attempt to imitate his New York accent, but if you could just imagine the quintessential New Yorker, that was him. He said, now, Greg, let's get one thing straight. And I said, okay. And he said, your job is to extract every penny from my client that you can get. And my job is to keep that from happening. Are we clear? And I said, perfectly. <laughs> and he went on to try to prevent to his best level. He, he was definitely eager to uphold his end of the bargain. Now, just so you're not worrying or thinking about the end of this story, turns out it wasn't going to be financially feasible for their company to alter things to, to take in this improvement. Uh, so nothing ever came of it, but it was an interesting experience nonetheless. This fella had an agenda, and he wanted to be very clear right from the outset about his agenda in our relationship. I want you to know something. God has an agenda for you. When you come to God, God has a purpose. He has something that he is after from you. He has an agenda. And God's stated agenda right from the very start of your relationship with him is this. He intends, by hook or by crook, to redeem you. He already paid the cost of his son's own blood. And now he is going to use every means necessary to redeem you utterly, to redeem you through and through. God's intention is not just to pull you up out of the depths of hell, to preserve you from the wrath of God that abides on all those who are outside of God's uh, saving graces. God's goal is to take your character, even the worst components of your character, 
and turn them and transform them such that the sin that besets you actually becomes your greatest asset to the kingdom of God. Now I want you to know that on occasion when I sit down with a person or a couple, they come for counseling, right at the very start, what I tell them is God's agenda for you and this need is to so change you that after the course of many years, I will have another person that struggles with this very same thing and I want to send them to you because now this is actually your strength. Something that was your weakness is now your strength. And that's how thoroughly God wants to redeem you. That's how thoroughly God wants to restore you and turn you into the image of Christ. And that's what we find from this passage here. Let's review very quickly what God has for us or what God's been showing us. Through Ephesians chapter 4, God's been telling us through Paul that there's this Gentile way of thinking. This Gentile way of thinking is uh, dark. It's desensitized. It leads us into captivity and covetousness and idolatry. And it's always sort of knocking at the door. We never outgrow this Gentile propensity to think of certain fallen way. It's not enough for us to just acknowledge this Gentile way. But we have to rebut it and repudiate it. We have to get it out of our lives. Paul says that we have to take it off. We have to put it off like a garment that has fire ants in it. Those of you who grew up in the southeast, maybe you've sat on a fire ant pile and the ants get all over you and the only thing you can do is just shed off that clothing because they are biting you. You want it off. That's the idea. This Gentile way you have to put off. And the Christian life is not just negative. It's not just avoiding certain sins. We put these Gentile ways off, but we put on... Jesus Christ. God doesn't want just to strip us down. He wants to build us up in Christ Jesus. So far, though, Paul's counsel has been general in nature. Put off, put on, avoid this Gentile way of thinking, be renewed in your minds. It's general advice, no specifics yet. Furthermore, his advice has been primarily internal, the way that we think. Now Paul's commands are actually going to take a turn to the specifics. Now, Paul is very careful about the specifics that he chooses. He's going to hit us with four of these specifics. And there's more to follow, but these four go together in a section. Now, consider all the different specific points of character that he could have touched on. He had to be selective. And he chose these very four for a reason, which we'll get to at the end, okay? So, as Pastor Dom read for us this morning, I want us to uh, settle in on verses 25 through 29, and I want us to see very quickly the structure of Ephesians 4, 25 through 29. So look at your Bibles real quick. Let's look at verse 20, and we're going to see the structure that sort of plays out over these next four verses. He says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now, this is the pattern that he takes, that he uses over these four character traits. There is 
a prohibition. Stop lying. Stop dealing in falsehood. Be angry. Don't sin. Don't steal. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Those are prohibitions, right? And then with those prohibitions, he follows it up with an affirmation. Don't lie, but rather speak the truth. Don't sin in your anger, but rather deal with it quickly. Don't steal, but work hard. Furthermore, Paul is a really good teacher. He's a, he, he's like a really good parent that just doesn't lay down rules. This man actually gives us some rationale. So he tells us what to stop doing. He tells us what to start doing. And then he tells us why. Why it's important to put off, to put on these four different things. Make sense, everybody? So we'll cover these. Uh, number two, these four groups, honesty, anger, theft, and speech, are often grouped together in Scripture. Very often they're grouped together with cautionary tales. There's the cautionary tale of Cain, of King Saul, of Jonah who went to Nineveh, of Judas Iscariot. These were men who allowed these four traits in some measure to infiltrate their lives. These are four traits that don't necessarily build on each other. But when we start talking about dysfunction in our spirit, these are four traits that are unfortunately, ugly stepsisters of each other. And they're always together. The other thing I want us to observe is Paul's wisdom in lumping these four things together. Okay? When we start talking honesty, anger, edifying words, refusing to steal, working hard with our hands. Every Christian in here, no matter how long we've walked with the Lord, no matter how many years we've walked with the Lord, these are sins that are always knocking on the door of our character. You will never outgrow the temptation to fudge the truth. You will never outgrow the temptation to let anger take hold of you. You will never outgrow the temptation to just slip something to yourself that's not yours. You will never outgrow the temptation to use words that puff yourself up or use words that get a laugh at somebody's expense in a sinful way. You will never outgrow these temptations. In fact, what I found is that when I am most cl closely walking with the Lord, is when I'm most aware of sinful infiltrations into my character in these areas. In Paul's wisdom, these are areas that require a remarkable amount of spiritual attention to keep rooting out of our lives. Does that make sense? I don't want us, in other words, to sit here and think, 
if Paul were sitting here today, he would say, I know how hard it is to tell the truth. Even yesterday, I was tempted to fudge a little. That's what the Apostle Paul would say. He would say, Paul, how could that be? You're an apostle. He'd say, I'm a sinner. (laughs) And so are you, and we need to give that attention. Okay, let's move forward. We're going to, our four uh, points are going to follow the the four uh, sets, and so you can just follow along that way. So we're going to begin, of course, with verse 25, with speaking truth. Paul says in the prohibition, and in each of our little points, uh, we'll have the the three, the prohibition, the affirmation, and the rationale. And you can just follow that in and just fill those in if you want to in your notes, and uh, we can go from there. So what's the prohibition in verse 25? Paul says, having put away falsehood. I want us to notice that when he says, having put away falsehood, that's past tense. He's assuming that when you turn to Christ, you've already made a decision in your soul to put away lying, to put away falsehood. Also, he uses a a generic word for false. Having put away that which is false. So Paul is not just talking about lying. Paul is not just talking about theological error. Paul is not just talking about other mistruths in between. He's saying anything and everything that is false, anything and everything that is contrary to God, you have turned to the God of truth, therefore be people of truth, put away that which is false. Don't hold on to something that's false as a backup plan or as a plan B. You put it away. Allow your character to be informed by that which is true. Proverbs 12.22, God says that there are some things that are an abomination to him, and one of those is lying lips. God is a God of truth. Reality conforms to him. Abomination means something that is perverse. You want it out of your sight. And God says he wants falsehood to be away from him, out of his sight. So what's the affirmation? Well, it's present. Be speaking the truth with your neighbor. Be speaking the truth. Right now, present tense, allow truth to reign. The second thing is it's it's corporate. I'd already talked about growing up in the south sitting on a fire ant pile at a church picnic one year little kids sat down on a fire ant pile got covered in him his parents stripped his clothes off and tossed him in the lake <laughs> get those fire ants off well in the south there's another little word we say all y'all okay so if we were sitting here in church and i wanted everybody to get up and leave i'd say all y'all leave okay which means how many of you All of you. Are there any exceptions? No. All y'all means all (laughs) y'all. And that's what Paul says right here. All y'all speak honestly. No exceptions. It's corporate. Everybody here. Everybody here. And it's interesting that he 
uses it externally. Speak, all y'all be speaking truth right now with your neighbor. It's almost a fundamental given that you're going to speak truth with other Christians. But Paul's particularly concerned that our relationships with outsiders be governed by truth. Speak truth with those outside. Titus 1-2 says that it is impossible for God to lie. And so by speaking the truth with those who are outside of us, by speaking truth into theological error, by speaking true things about God, not just about honestly what we're doing, what we've done, so, so on and so forth, but even just speaking truth about God to people around us. That, he says, is a function of godliness. And what is the rationale? The rationale is this. He says, be speaking truth with your neighbor because or for we are members one of another. What Paul is saying here is that there is a, a societal bond of truth that God has put there. And a lie or speaking falsehood or affirming something that's false tears at the very fabric of that societal bond that God has put there. In fact, what Paul is getting at is that to participate in falsehood, especially with those who are outside of us, is a small part of a greater lie whose architect is the devil himself. John 8, 44. You are of your father, the devil, who is the father of lies. When there's dishonesty, we are showing. When, when we affirm theological error, when we affirm that which isn't true, we tear at the fiber, at the fabric of what God has put into our relationships and our culture. And we're showing that God is not our Father, but somebody else is. But when God is our King and Redeemer and Savior, true words about God and truthful representations of ourselves immediately follow. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go slightly off script here, okay? I'm going to go slightly off script. I want everybody to hear me very quickly. Through my years as pastor, I've had occasion, I was, I was reflecting with Danielle on it the other day where she's been involved in these as well, and I, I think I counted four, four times, where there was a person caught red-handed in a, in a lie. And they were confronted in their lie. And none of those four times did the person admit to their lie. It is so hard 
once we're sort of called on the carpet to confess it and admit it. Paul is later, we'll cover this next week, going to say, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. If the Lord has pricked at your heart and you realize that there's an element of your character that needs addressing, don't fight that. Don't grieve the Spirit in that way. Allow correction. Everybody, by show of hands, how many of us have told a lie? Okay. So, let's, let us pretend for a moment that my wife confronts me in a lie. If I say, you know what, honey, you're right. In a weird, spiritual way, her respect for me is actually going to go up than if I say, oh, no, there was a misunderstanding or no, that's not what I said or try to get out of it some way. Because she, too, by her own confession just now, has told lies. She's not going to judge me. So I would really encourage you to let the grace of God work in this area because it is a very hard thing to let the Spirit of God get in and begin to heal. And it does require a fair amount of grace, of uh, acceptance of that grace on our parts. Which is why I think Paul leads with this. Because it is so hard to let the Spirit deal with us in this area. Number two. Paul says this. Put away sinful anger. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath and give no opportunity for the devil. So what's the prohibition? Put away sinful anger. Psalm 4.4. Paul is actually quoting that. He says, lie on your bed and be angry and do not sin. Exodus 34.6. Moses asks God, Moses asks to see God. And when God passes by, he does so with affirmations about himself, true words about himself. And God's affirmation is this, God who is abounding in steadfast love and slow to anger. We're told in the Proverbs that it's the glory of a man to be slow to wrath. Yes, there are times, Paul is saying right here, or all throughout the Bible, where something happens that should stir anger in us. But, that anger must be slow in coming. And there must be uh, not only a slowness, but a refusal in that anger to sin. I have found that the sin of anger takes place most often in the closed confines of a home. Mom or dad are habitually and perpetually angry, yelling, flying off the handle, pinning their children down, screaming at them, red-faced and angry. It's like a bomb. They go off, and literally they have no memory of it. If they're confronted on it a day later, they don't remember it. Everybody else is walking around, picking up the pieces that just obliterated in the home. And they feel fine because it was all released, but everybody else is victim to it and got exploded upon. You've heard it this way, walking on 
eggshells. You don't want to set off the person who's around you. And years and years and years go by and this sin of explosive anger flies under the radar. Never addressed. Never talked about. Always forgotten. Never apologized for. It is corrosive in a home. Paul says we have to put that off. Yes, there are things that can and should anger you. But never should it result in sin, a tirade. Paul says that when something angers you, be sure to give that quick resolution. Don't let the sun go down on it. And I would Just add, and I'm sure the Apostle Paul would say amen to this, before we allow our souls to work toward anger, we have to keep other biblical commands in mind in the confrontation of that so that no root of bitterness takes place, so that no root of bitterness gets in there. So for example, a, a believer, a person that you know to be a wise and mature person, by all appearances makes a mistake that hurts you. It's a, by all appearances, it's a sinful mistake. Well, at that moment, two things should happen. You should, number one, resolve not to let the sun go down on it. You're going to resolve it quickly. But number two, to let love reign. I'm resolved to believe all things, hope all things, endure all things. And I have every confidence that this person, even though by my perspective it looks like it was there to hurt me, I'm going to assume that they had only the best intentions in mind. I don't have the whole picture. I don't have the whole story. And I'm going to call them or text them or get together with them with every expectation that there is a perfectly reasonable answer to this. When I have taken that tack, I would say, Over 90% of the time, there has been a reasonable answer for that. It's when we make assumptions and when we let assumptions of evil fester and build, we don't give the benefit of the doubt, we don't love, that anger tends to bubble up and result in sin and much sin. And the Apostle Paul says, don't be naive. This is, this is of the devil. The devil is always ready to pounce on a person whose heart is angry. Where it says here, give no opportunity for the devil, I would like to very strongly suggest that you circle that and write Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. There, God rejects the offering of Cain. And Cain gets angry. And God comes to him and says, why are you angry? If you do well, you'll be accepted. Sin is lying at the door. And its desire is to dominate you. And it came to pass Very next verse. Cain took Abel into a field and killed him. 
with sin crouching? Was sin ready to take that boy? Absolutely. It's almost in the same breath. God came to him to warn him, there is a crouching lion ready to take you. And my advice to you would be the same if there is an, a root of angerness, a root of anger in your heart and it's directed at somebody or something. Deal with that quickly. Giving every benefit of the doubt, giving every expectation that it will be explained in time. Knowing that the devil loves an angry heart to take advantage of. Number three. Prohibition. Stealing. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. One of the commentators I read. Now, most of the commentaries I have are awesome. Um, I have a friend, his name is Brian. He knows every good commentary that's ever been written. And whenever we're about to study a different book, I call Brian I say, what commentary should I have? And he says, buy this one. And that's the one I buy. I don't think I just do it, okay? He's, this is a good commentary, but here's what he says. This verse right here is proof positive that Paul was writing to poor people because only poor people steal. <laughs> that is hopelessly naive, okay? People of all, of all demographics steal. Do you know why? Because they like it. Because they want it. I want it. Rich people steal. Poor people steal. Middle class people steal. Boys steal. Old men steal. People steal. Students steal. Students steal answers all the time. I was reading this week about pastors who steal. The president of a prominent denomination plagiarized years and years and years of sermons. Full plagiarism, plain for all to see. That's stealing. That's stealing. People steal because they want it. And, as this passage is hinting at, it's a function of laziness. It's easier to steal than it is to go work hard and make the money so that you can afford it or to get this thing. Let me illustrate. You remember King Ahab? He had a field next to him. Here's the king. He's the richest man in the land. He has a field that he wants, a vineyard. So his wife murders and steals so he can have it. We steal because we want it. Well, Paul says... Let the person who's stealing stop stealing. We get the word kleptomaniac from this. It's the word klepto. Uh, it's taking, taking what isn't yours. Paul says, but instead of stealing, here's a literal translation of the next phrase. Let him work to exhaustion doing good with his hand. Paul's not, remember, Paul's writing this to Christians. And Paul would not be taken aback and utterly offended that a Christian stole. He would say, of course they did. It's a character problem deep in the heart of sinners. 
But when you encounter that, there is a positive affirmation. The person who was doing that, let's encourage them to put on a good work ethic, work to exhaustion, doing good with his hands. And the rationale is so that all that was wrong about stealing, all of this essential selfishness, would be put off and transferred to something that's good. Let him work with his hands, not so that he can be rich and accumulate a bunch of stuff to himself, but so that he can share it with people who are in need. Stealing is selfish. I want it, and it doesn't matter to me that it's yours or that you need it. I want it, therefore it's mine. I'm taking it, either by deception or by force. It's mine. This is so opposite that. It says, you have needs. I can see that you have needs. And so I'm willing to go work a 12-hour shift and deny myself so that I can give to you in your need and you can have what's mine. Do you see that radical difference of what Paul is talking about here? And here, in this one, is where we can really begin to see the heart of Paul in dealing with us in our character issues. It's not just about stopping the evil, it's about such a radical character transformation that what was once a major problem of ours now becomes a major strength. A thief is now pulling all-nighters so that he can share with a widow in the church. That is utter, absolute, clear redemption that, tra- that is, reflects transformation so deep within it can only be attributed to the Spirit of God. Think of Peter. He wouldn't profess Christ to a slave girl. And 50 days later, he's standing up in front of tens of thousands of Israelites proclaiming that Christ is the king. A few days after that, he's telling the Pharisees, look, if you imprison me for preaching Christ, that's on you, but I can't help but speak. And just a few days earlier, he couldn't even profess to a slave girl. It's transformation. That's what Paul is after. Let the thief who steals, let him not steal anymore, but let him. Let him be so thoroughly changed from within that he wants to work hard so that he can give to people who need instead of taking from people who need. He's giving to people who need. That's what Paul is after. And then last, edifying speech. Paul says, put away any speech that defiles. The word for corrupting speech literally means to be rotten, putrefying. It's used of fruit that sat out a few too many days and the flies are collecting. Now, I'm a man who doesn't like any brown on his banana, okay? Preferably slightly green. Anybody on the, that team with me? Okay. Who are the brown banana people? Okay. All y'all need to get out of here, okay? <laughs> too nasty. Now imagine the banana that your wife tells you, don't throw away because I'm saving it for banana bread. And it's black, okay? And the flies are gathering. That, that's the word. It's starting to putrefy, okay? It's beyond ripe. This is corrosive speech. So this could be up to and including 
cuss words, dirty jokes, jokes that are just, just bad-natured teasing. Okay, there's good-natured teasing, and then there's the bad-natured teasing that's intended to belittle. Paul actually reserves his strongest possible, we call it in grammar, adversative. Okay? That's a fancy word for but. Okay? But it's a strong one. Let no corrupting, corrosive, putrid talk come out of your mouths. But! You might want to put an exclamation mark, or but rather, or totally on the contrary. Utter transformation. Let... Only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. Paul says that this is speech that's not only good, but timely. It's helpful, edifying. That's what it means. And what Paul is getting at here, he says that that this will build people up and give grace to those who hear. And here's what the takeaway, here's the rationale. It's very important, actually. Speech isn't about the speaker. Speech is about the listener. And as the speaker, we have to be aware more of the listener than we do of the speaker. And so we give a word that's helpful and timely. How many times have you said to somebody, you know, it was the right thing to say, but the wrong time to say it. That would be corrosive speech. It's an inappropriate thing to say. say. Well, this is speech that's more about the speaker than it is about the hearer. And what Paul wants is a hearer focus. What would bless them? What would edify them? What would be timely for them? Now, sure, there's some occasions where we have to speak apart from the listener's desires. There are times when truth has to be spoken that won't make them happy. But again, that's to their grace and to their benefit. They've gotten themselves in a position where they need to hear something. Even if you know it, drive, it's going to drive them away. God confronted Cain and told him what he didn't want to hear, And it didn't work in the sense of keeping Cain from sinning. It hastened Cain's sin. But he needed to hear it. And God, who never errs, who never makes a mistake, still spoke to the benefit of Cain. Something he didn't want to hear, but something that would bless him and help him if he had only listened. Okay, in conclusion, let's wrap up. What is God's agenda with you? What is God's agenda with you? Why does he have you at Fellowship Bible Church? Why does he have you living your life for him? Why why has he called you from darkness to light? What is his agenda? God's stated agenda is to remake you. He wants to utterly change you. And take those character qualities that 
you would admit are your biggest weaknesses. And by his grace, he wants to turn them into your greatest strengths such that you're able to bless God's people with them. So thorough are his redemptive purposes that he wants your greatest spiritual weakness to become your greatest spiritual attribute. He really does. Now, (laughs) imagine that you sat down with a Christian friend and you confessed to one of these deep-seated problems. All my life I've struggled telling the truth. I've been cheating the government for years on my taxes. I've I cuss. I do it on the job site. People hear. You say something like that to a Christian friend. And they say, let me stop you right there. I want you to know something. God's intention is that 10 years from now, this thing that's beset you would be so solved by his grace that others will be blessed by your journey out of it into wholeness. You would probably look at that person and say, that'll never happen, right? I don't see how that can happen. Well, first of all, that's a good place to start. But secondly, it can and it does happen. The man writing this letter was a murderous scoundrel. And now, who tried to hurt Christ at every turn. And he's writing this letter from jail for Christ. He used to try to make Christ suffer. And now he's suffering for Christ. So you believe that and embrace the grace of God and let him go to work in your character, redeeming you, changing you, putting off those old ways of thinking, putting on those new ways of thinking, and the grace that saved you will be the grace that redeems you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would put off what's old and put on what's new and seek to leave behind the old things and strive forward and reach ahead to the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. May we remember that there's forgiveness when we fall and there's peace that we have with you. May we move forward and strive forward knowing that you've redeemed us and that you continue to redeem us from the things of this world. Root out these character problems that we have These are present tense things. We'll never outgrow these four things that Paul listed. And we groan in this flesh, but cause us by your grace to draw near to you. 
and to let you go to work fixing our souls. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.